Welcome to the first book choice for 2021. I'm Vanessa Levenstein, in today for our lovely editor, Paige Nick, who is also editor of the Facebook group, The Good Book Appreciation Society. Paige, thank you for putting together today's show, and I'm joined in the studio by Nzuma Keta. As book lovers, I'm sure you'll agree that books have been an absolute salvation during this challenging time. I hope you'll find something on the book choice shelf that has your name on it. This month, Philippa Schaefer's weighs in on quick and easy plant-based deliciousness by Deliciously Ella. One of Paige Nick's favourite South African authors is Nick Mklongo, and his latest book, Paradise in Gaza, does not disappoint. Beryl Eichenberger enjoys the spell of Alice Hoffman's Magic Lessons, while John Hanks will be filling us in on Margot Branch's first field guide to mushrooms of southern Africa. Anthony Fridgen delves into historical fiction with Amandla by Alex Jans. Fiction, but are people we know well, spanning our history from 1838 onwards. Beverly Ruas Muller chats to us about the new POTUS in Joe Biden, American Dreamer by Evan Osnes, and Bev also pays tribute to the late, great John Le Carre. Imagine a world with no banks, no stock market, no billionaires. Melvin Minar takes a step inside, another now. Dispatches from an alternative present by Yanis Vurofakis. And our special guest reviewer this month, Jacques Rousseau, professor of ethics at the University of Cape Town, deconstructs the psychology of stupidity by Jean-Francois Marmion. Leslie Beek has something for our young readers. Born a crime not for adults, by Trevor Noah, and Hope, Kind, Love, Gaga, Stories of Kindness and Community, by the Born This Way reporters with Lady Gaga. So on with the show. It's the month of love, so here's something delicious for your valentine. Quick and easy, plant-based deliciousness, by Deliciously Ella. Philippa Schaefer puts on her chef's hat. Quick and easy, the newest Deliciously Ella cookbook. Whether you want to extend your repertoire of plant-based recipes or are considering converting to a plant-based diet, you will appreciate this cookbook. This collection of plant-based deliciousness contains over 100 vegan recipes, plus lots of nutritional and wellness info on how to eat a balanced plant-based diet. In 2011, Ella was diagnosed with a condition called postural tachycardia syndrome as well as Ehlers-Danlos and mast cell activation disorder, following four months in and out of hospital. Suffering from pain, exhaustion, and depression, she persevered to find an alternative to medication for treatment and discovered that a plant-based diet, free of gluten, meat, sugar, and dairy, worked for her. Inspired by her new way of eating, she launched... While still at university, her blog, Deliciously Ella, enthusiastically sharing the recipe she developed, natural, honest food made from simple ingredients. A trailblazer in healthy eating, her popular food blogs led the plant-based eating trend. Ella has previously written three cookbooks. Her first cookbook, Deliciously Ella, was published in 2015, and has been the best-selling debut cookbook ever in the UK. The easier it feels to make the recipes, the more likely you are to make them, writes Ella. 
the first stock you're covered with the kitchen staples listed for your convenience. In this newest, attractively designed, easy-on-the-eye cookbook, many recipes take no more than 10 to 30 minutes of your time. There's a chapter confined to 10 to 15 minutes, another 20 to 30, a very different breakfast section, and one for weekends. There are dips and dressings and sweets. For big batch recipes, cook more than needed and freeze the rest for an instant meal. Matt, her husband, loves pancakes, hence turmeric and courgette pancakes, beetroot pancakes, 10-minute apple pancakes, spelled crepe with chocolate spread, a treat for Sunday morning breakfast. I go for the muffins. The buckwheat granola is a definite must-try, and I can't resist an oat cookie. Simple five-ingredient breakfast cookies, quick healthy cookies filled with fiber and plant protein for on-the-go breakfasts and mid-morning pick-me-ups. For something fancy and sweeter, there are the nut butter chocolate chip cookies in the sweet section. I look forward to baking the quinoa bread, one of Ella's favorites in the book, and the green quinoa risotto packed with greens, sautéed asparagus and courgette, a creamy lemon and pea puree, and a handful of rockets. Spinach and potato dolphin wash uses cashews and almond milk for a creamy sauce and nutritional yeast for extra flavor. Ella says this is perfect for anyone missing something traditionally cheesy. She serves it as a main with lots of roasted greens. A mushroom and walnut ragu is good over pasta, then with baked potatoes, second time around. Most important, writes Ella, is to create a way of cooking, eating and living that feels genuinely enjoyable and therefore sustainable. Something that you enjoy and makes you feel good physically and mentally every day. The book is published by Hodden Stoughton and sells for 355 Rand. FMR. The book I want to tell you about today is called Paradise in Gaza and it's author Nikam Flongo's fifth novel and it came out in October of 2020. It was published by Quela Books here in South Africa. Nick is an exceptional South African author. If you haven't heard of him, please do look him up. He's currently spending time as an artist in residence in Berlin, and his books have been translated into a number of languages, including Spanish and German. So he's internationally quite popular, as well as really huge locally. I've read and loved all of Nick's books, but I've got to say that Paradise in Gaza has been my absolute favorite. The characters from Gaza and their stories just keep popping back into my mind, even a few months after reading it. This book, it's got something about the short story to it because it doesn't just focus on one character or one place or one story, but rather it's of community. It follows an extended family during a hard time in our past. So it starts with Mpisi Mpisani, who's traveling with his eight-year-old son from Joburg back to the village of his birth, where he's going to bury his mother and visit his first wife. And in his mind, it's just a very quick trip because he's in a hurry to return to Joburg, where his second wife is pregnant with another son. But when the eight-year-old son he's traveling with disappears in the village, it sets off a series of events that change everything. With the disappearance of the child, it becomes quite a brutal story. But I've got to say, it's also really gentle and full of joys, um, this book. And I think that's much like South Africa, I suppose. We're quite multifaceted. You know, we take the good with the bad. As you sink into the novel... You spend time with his second wife, who lives in Joburg, his youngest son, who's born soon after the disappearance of his firstborn son, 
And the novel also follows his first wife who lives in the village. And we get to know each of these characters and follow their own lives and stories. It's a surprise of a novel. I thought it was going to go in one direction, then it took a turn. And then I thought it was definitely going to go in another direction, and then it took another turn. And then I just settled in for the home stretch and decided I wasn't going to try and guess what was going to happen. And instead, I was just going to sink into it and enjoy Nick's beautiful writing. These wonderful characters uh, set in a hard life and a hard country, but all trying to make it work as best they can. I've got to tell you, I think Nick Mplongo is one of South Africa's finest writers, and it's really well worth checking out Paradise in Gaza. You are the new day. Magic by Alice Hoffman would have been intrigued by the centuries-old curse on the Owens women. Any man who loves an Owens woman will die. Where did it come from and why? Now the long-awaited prequel gives us all the answers, and in true Alice Hoffman style, takes us into the world of magic, mayhem, and a fine romance. A time when those with the gift of the unnamed arts were witches and caused for superstition, intolerance, and persecution with torture and death, the penalty. What I loved about this novel is the ease with which the author seamlessly blends history and fiction as we are transported back into the late 1600s. 
firstly in England in Essex County, then across the waters to the island of Curacao, and finally to the U.S., the other Essex County, and Salem, Massachusetts. Hoffman has the ability to bring a place and time so instantly to life that you are part of it. Her books are a history lesson one does not easily forget. Emotional, gut-wrenching, and brilliantly imaginative, this is where we meet Maria Owens and learn of the origin of the family curse. It is 1664, and a foundling is abandoned in a snowy English field. The solitary healer, Hannah Owens, adopts her. And from the beginning, it is obvious that Maria has the gift. It is Hannah who, with her own rare gift of kindness, teaches Maria what she herself knows. They sit together with their courage tea as the rules of magic are revealed. Maria is a talented and responsible student, but is warned to abide by the paramount rule. Do as you will, but harm no one. What you give will be returned to you threefold. Something that sometimes she forgets. That the suspicions of the time wreak havoc with these two women. Maria is sent far away to Curacao, and when she is abandoned by the man she loves, she invokes the haunting curse. There is enormous depth to the story as it travels across the years to 1696 in colorful and absorbing detail. Hoffman is expert in describing human failures and intolerance as she explores the dark history of a misunderstood gift. I would say that Hoffman has a magical pen, as the book is enchanting, captivating in its realism, and invoking all the spells, familiars, meet Cade and the Crow, and healing remedies that magic conjures up. You'll recognize many of the remedies as those that your mother used when we were children, and they weren't witches. But Hoffman also captures the softness and joy of love, the nurturing of good people and the gifts that they bring. The book is an adventure in itself, leaving you breathless as we meet memorable characters and learn that each rule has its purpose. But the most important lesson is to know that love is the only answer. FMR 101.3 FM I am one of those adventurous foodies who loves trying new dishes, a passion shared by my wife, who is not only an excellent cook, but is always interested in experimenting with new foods and flavours. We both enjoy mushrooms, and when we lived in Switzerland, got enormous satisfaction in getting up early in the morning to collect a big basket of field mushrooms, going for just one easily recognised species. But how adventurous should we be in South Africa when there are so many more species to be found? The answer is simple. Only eat mushrooms that have been positively identified as edible. And here Margot Branch's Field Guide to the Mushrooms of South Africa is a good way to start. One of those well-designed field guides that does not claim to be comprehensive but will fit easily into your pocket and has enough information of the species selected and photographed to encourage you to become a mycophile, a person whose hobby is hunting wild edible mushrooms. Correctly identifying the delectable species, such as the chanterelle and the truffles, is of course of paramount importance. But please be careful, because some of the mushrooms are deadly poisonous, such as the appropriately named death cap, 
of frequently encountered species that's responsible for 90% of all mushroom fatalities worldwide. Just 30 grams of the death cap is enough to kill an adult. The photographs and accompanying text in this field guide will certainly start you off in the right direction. And if a specimen you find does not fit the description exactly, Margot Branch quite correctly recommends you consult an expert. And better still, if you are collecting novice, learn the features of the poisonous ones. Highlighted in this book, with a skull and crossbone logo at the top of the page, and then collect with an experienced mushroom hunter. The first page of the book has a stark warning, and I quote, The author and publisher do not assume any responsibility for sickness, death, or other misfortune suffered by any person resulting from eating any mushroom described in this book. Eating mushrooms can be much more than a gastronomic delight, as was highlighted in a headline on the BBC this morning, which said, and I quote, Australia man missing for 18 days survived on mushrooms, end quote. Yes, some of the edible species can indeed be eaten raw, and I can only assume that the person concerned was indeed an experienced mushroom collector. It's always better to be sure of what you have collected, as encapsulated in one sentence also on the front page, and I quote, Remember, there are old mushroom hunters and bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old bold mushroom hunters, end quote. The title again of this well-presented book, so easy to use and take with you when you start foraging, is First Field Guide to Mushrooms of Southern Africa. It's the second edition. The author is Margot Branch and is published by Straight Nature in Cape Town and it sells for 80 rand. in 
From the opening page, a mandler by Alex Jans captured my interest. An Afrikaans man confronts a very much older black man in a bedroom at Hrotoskir, Cape Town. It's time, Madiba, time to wake, time to die. No mystery as to who Madiba is. Curiosity aroused as to how this was going to play out, knowing that Nelson Mandela isn't going to get shot, the author takes us back from the opening scene, set in 2010, to 1838, and the killing of Pitra Tiff and his party of Boer trackers by Dingaan. Slowly, the connection between the two men in the bedroom at Hrotoskir evolves. We are given fascinating and revealing insights into the minds and attitudes of the two men. A most fascinating, informative read, historical fiction, well executed. But, I do have reservations, though. A Mandler needed a serious, tough editor. There's just too much historical information and the names of countless people. Yes, it added to the narrative, but by reducing it wouldn't have distracted from the story. Alex Jans has done a huge amount of research. Commendable. It must be very hard to spend all that time and effort in producing words and then having to cut them. And the same for all those pages gathered from historical research. It took Alex Jans over a decade to complete this work, so I can understand he's hanging on to every last word of his labor of love. The descendant of Johann de Beer, who we met in 1838, is William de Beer, the protagonist in the last part of the book. His achievements, including playing rugby for the Springboks, seems to be an excuse to encompass everything an Afrikaner, Burisian, is supposed to be. The journey with his father from outside Bloemfontein to Lily's Lee Farm in Ravonia in 1962, on horseback? There's even an on-train romance on the famous luxurious blue train, opportunity to go into travel log mode, and still more exposition. Additional travelogue to come as we are taken on a journey around the Cape, all very nice, but doesn't move the story along. There's even a plug for the Mount Nelson Hotel. By this time I was getting tired, bored with it, and just wanted to get to the confrontation with Nelson Mandela to see how it's resolved. But fifteen-something pages to go, as we're told how William got Mandela's bedroom. There was no tension because all the way back from page one, we already knew that he managed it. Finally, the end, a sense of relief, but I was left unsatisfied with the ending which seemed too glib. Perhaps even the author had had enough by this time. A Mandler by Alex Jans is published by Fainbors Press 
at a recommended price of 335 rand. My advice is, ignore most of what I've said. Buy a copy and read the book. There's a lot to enjoy and think about. My grumping about the travel log is from a South African's perspective. It's not aimed at us, but the international market and the readers will most likely find it very interesting and informative. Joe Biden's season of history has at last arrived, at exactly the right moment. This short, well-stocked biography by historian Evan Osnes, Joe Biden, American Dreamer, is a useful introduction to one of the most unlikely prize fighters in politics and now President of the United States. He was born into a working-class family and attended a lesser university in Delaware, where he helped to work for his tuition fees, played football, and didn't pay much attention to his studies. He did, however, in 1961, walk out of a diner that refused to serve a black classmate, so his political and social consciousness began early. He married Nelia and had two boys and an infant daughter, Naomi. Young and photogenic, he audaciously took on the incumbent senator of 25 years, and when he won, the upset was one of the biggest in the Senate's history. Astonishingly, aged 29, he was too young for the Senate before Election Day in 1972. But before he could be sworn in, his wife and baby daughter were killed in a random car accident while he was in Washington. His two little boys were injured and hospitalized. Devastated, he wanted to walk away from his new political career, but was persuaded to stay on for six months. His sister Val moved in and later told Osnos that his boys were all that made him get out of bed in the morning for the 90-minute commute each way. Five years later, he married Jill, a teacher, and they had a daughter, Ashley. But despite his success as Obama's vice president, his private trials were not behind him. He was particularly close to his son, Beau, the attorney general of Delaware and father of two, who in 2013 was diagnosed with brain cancer and died within two years. Biden at that point must have thought that the quip about him being the unluckiest, luckiest man in politics was terribly true. Yet history had one more play in store for him. The comeback kid returned as presidential candidate to a country in chaos and to unseat a sitting president. The book contains revealing interviews by many famous and lesser knowns about his natural empathy and passion for what he does, how he talks too much, but he also knows how to listen. It was written just before his successful election, and there's one quote I think is worth including here. Biden, when asked about the country's deep divisions, replied that most Americans did not want a revolution. Not even this battle-scarred veteran could foresee the disgraceful events at the Capitol on January the 6th and it's something he will have to keep in mind as he tries to repair the craziness of the last four years. I found this book useful and very readable. Our editor, Paige Nick, has allowed me to pay tribute to the great espionage novelist John McCarry, who died in December, aged 89. His smooth skills and lively plots often obscured his profound talent in recording the frailties of human nature. 
He was by no means merely a spy writer, but one whose skills were belatedly recognized by the literati. He was nominated for the International Booker Prize in 2011. He ruefully noted that his great fault was to be the author of bestsellers. Born to a fraudster father who spent time in jail and a missing mother, he and his brother grew up under the shadow of their posh childhood, bought with stolen goods, and as soon as he could he fled for Germany, where for a spell he lived as a minor spy during the Cold War. And it is not surprising, therefore, that betrayal is deep at the heart of all his novels. His best-known character, George Smiley, a decent, honest man fighting a world of intrigue and venality, is one of the outstanding characters of the 20th century, chicken soup for this book-lined heart. It's seldom we are able to thank those who have given us so much joy. To the late, wonderful John le Carre, my very heartfelt gratitude. What's new? How is the world treating you? You haven't changed a bit. Lovely as ever, I must admit. What's new? How did that romance come through? We haven't met since then. Gee, but it's
but seeing you is grand, and you were sweet to offer your The name Yanis Varoufakis is not one that sits easily with the 1%. The mega-capitalists who many believe, and Varoufakis certainly does, have driven the world to where the 99% is getting poorer as the interconnected world spins faster and faster on its axis and economics in general swirl out of control. But if there is one book that ought to have been in all the Christmas stockings of the 1%, as well as the rest, it's Faru Farkas's new book, The Other Now, subtitled Dispatches from an Alternative Present. Reading like a sci-fi novel with plainly art but colourful characters, it really is a fantasy spun on grand alternative economic theory. But it is a pretty good read with nice dramatic thrust. There's a good plot that urges one along. So even the 1% could muster the effort to learn about how the world could have been a better place after the disaster of the 2008 economic crisis. Greek-born 59-year-old Yanis Varoufakis is one of the most famous economic thinkers of our time, one that elicits fierce reaction, deep debate and stir up conservative emotions. He's a revolutionary in a proto-modern sense, carrying the flame for the thoughts of Karl Marx and the alternative non-aligned movement tradition that runs through the writings of people like fellow Greek Andreas Papandreou and the great John Maynard Keynes. To say Farufakis is an evangelist for a better social system than the current faltering global neo-capitalist paradigm is understating his red-blooded and powerful arguments. Already an established academic who had taught at universities in the UK, USA, Australia and Greece, fame or infamy came when for a few months in 2015, the newly empowered Greek government appointed him as finance minister and he led the effort to get the European Union's bean counters to give his homeland some financial slack when poverty was destroying its society and economy. When he failed, he resigned. Already a widely read author in English, he wrote about that experience in a book titled Adults in the Room, My Battle with Europe's Deep Establishment. This 2017 publication was later made into a most watchable movie by the well-known Greek director Costa Gravos. Find it if you can. Farfakos was one of the founders of what is now known as the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025 or DiEM25 
a pan-European progressive movement. But back to the new book. Fully titled, it's called Another Now, Dispatches from an Alternative Present. Farufakis's skill as an engaging writer exposes the reader to mainly three characters that can argue about the experience of their alter egos in an imagined alternative reality. Costa, a cultivated technological nerd, Eva, an ex-banker libertarian, and Iris, a gender activist, slip into a space-time continuum, another now as it were, that started with the crash of 2008. In this substitute world, capitalism like shares and big banks had disappeared. Technology used by radical people power killed off powerful corporations and created a freer and more equal society. It's a delightful mash of platonic debate, sky-fi parable, and the author's clear message which edges in and out of a friendship storyline. It's a great read for 100%. The book under review here is The Psychology of Stupidity by Jean-Francois Marmion, a French psychologist. It was published in 2018 in French and in 2020 was released in English by Penguin Books. Let's start with the title. Calling a book The Psychology of Stupidity already rings warning bells in its presumptive smugness. And it turns out that much of what is described as stupidity in this book is in fact ordinary cognitive biases that we are all guilty of, but here described by authors who write as if they are invulnerable to those flaws themselves. The book is a thinly disguised broadside against people who don't share the same intellectual bent as the editor and many of the authors. And it's particularly targeted at Trump supporters, which is a recurring theme. And while I don't agree with the conclusions reached by Trump supporters, calling them things like stupid is exactly the kind of thing that's going to make it unlikely that they question those conclusions, or even that they'll be open to hearing the sorts of arguments presented in this book. The book is also terribly edited. It has no flow or coherence, moving from chapters abusing the stupid to reflections on cognition and human psychology, but with no clear linkages between the two sorts of content. I absolutely hated it, partly because I can see why some people would love it. And those people are exactly the ones who should not have their polarized idiots versus the rest of us thinking reinforced in such a way. There's enough of a veneer of intellectual sophistication in this book that those who want to be uncharitable towards other people's views would be able to regard the book as academic support for their caricaturing of opponents rather than for engaging with them. It's a book born out of the time and culture in which a huckster like Jordan Peterson is regarded as an intellectual and in which people who are allowed to do dangerous things like drive cars and own guns feel so alienated and insulted by a variously defined elite that they end up electing Donald Trump as president. The book is really just strange, quite madly incoherent, and sometimes quite uncomfortable to read because of its abusive tone. Furthermore, some of the contributions get things wrong on occasion. For example, in how they reinforce common misunderstandings of psychological research on occasion, such as the Dunning-Kruger effect. But then, the book is also internally inconsistent in that other contributions get those exact same things right. Then, alongside the smug and sneering essays discussing stupidity, the book also features some restrained and more intellectual contributions from authors like Daniel Kahneman, Antonio Damasio, and Alison Gopley. Their inclusion, however, doesn't help to address the main problem, namely that the concepts in psychology and critical thinking presented here are framed as being useful mostly to identify the stupid. So the book ends up being a whirlwind tour of theory that is constructed in such a way that it won't teach people much and will largely serve to confirm existing biases. Furthermore, I can't understand why people such as Kahneman agreed to contribute to this, 
it's not going to teach curious and impartial readers much, and because of its contemptuous approach to people who are ostensibly stupid, I imagine many readers won't even finish it. Its main outcome will be to provide further one-liners and supposed logical refutations for the sorts of people who spend their time on social media denouncing boogeymen like wokeness, critical race theory, or Marxism. But it won't make anybody think, which is ultimately a key reason for the existence of any non-fiction book worth reading. Like a baby if her man goes away A weeping and a wailing how he's done her wrong That's one thing you'll never hear me say Never gonna think that the man I lose Is the only man among men I'll snap my fingers to show I don't care I'll buy me a brand new dress to wear I'll scrub my neck I'll brush my hair and start all over again. Many a new face will please my eye. Many a new love will find me. Never have I once looked back to sigh over the romance behind me. Many a review Trevor Noah's adaptation of his book, Born a Crime, for young people, I thought I would Google him, just to check on a few things. It turns out that 64 million and 399,000 people had already done so, which might be just about all you need to know about the success of South Africa's most famous comedian, political commentator, 
and television star. I read the adult version of his story with appreciation. I read this version for young people with deep interest and fairly constant noting of the bits of it that will appeal to teenagers. All of it, I would say. He tells a fascinating and very accessible story of life as he lived it. A child of a black mother and a white father during the years when apartheid finally came to an end. He shares the experience of belonging nowhere, of making a life for himself, and of finding the courage to change the direction he could have traveled, was in fact traveling. Courage, honesty, bravery, wit, intelligence, and shining through always deep love and appreciation for his mother. I like this book very much. It's also extremely well written. Although its theme is ultimately serious, Trevor Noah is able to spin his story with humor and deep appreciation of the shared experiences, as well as the differences of being young in South Africa. Then, though it's not a competition, I googled Lady Gaga, who is responsible for the other book I'm viewing today. 2,234 million people have looked for information about her. And after I'd listened to a few songs, as you do, and watched some of the videos, as I wish I hadn't, they were a bit, well, much for me, I went back to the book. Her foundation, Born This Way, reflects her own struggle for mental health and with issues that would have felled a weaker personality. I admire that. I also admire that she and her mother have started the foundation to help young people address issues that they sadly all too often need to deal with eating disorders, self-harm, date rape, and worse. I get the feeling that her work in this project is very valuable, and Lady Gaga herself is deeply involved. The book, however, consisting of letters and reports from young people to Lady Gaga and her replies, is not as strong as I could have hoped, and the book design is very irritating and repetitive to read. A good editor and a better book designer would vastly improved this expensive hardback publication. Sadly, the experience of these American teenagers will be all too familiar to our own. We have too many of our own stories like this. I don't think this book adds anything to what they already know, even if it is heartening for them to understand that other people, including global stars like Lady Gaga, are in no way exempt from sadness and trauma. Born a Crime, Not for Adults, by Trevor Noah, was published in South Africa by Pan Macmillan in 2019. Hope, Kind, Love, Gaga, Stories of Kindness and Community by the Bournemouth Way Reporters with Lady Gaga was published by Macmillan Children's Books in 2020. I can show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid When did you last let your heart decide? I can open your eyes, take you wonder by wonder, over sideways and under on a magic carpet ride. A whole new world, a new Tell us no, 